studio right is that your Jeff Goldblum (laughs) (laughs) obviously you got (laughs) it all right hello and welcome to sometimes dead is better this isn't Doug Loves Movies and it's me Kristen and me Chris I thought this was Doug Loves Movies oh no I came prepared so Brian is here hi you cut out all of my Doug Loves Movies bits no so we are all here today um, to talk about a new movie that came out. Yeah, so this is a little bit different uh, episode. This is not a horror movie. Not right. really, anyway. No. But I think we've mentioned it a few times the past year. We were excited about this coming out. We like film. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't just watch horror movies. We watch all kinds of movies. And this is a, a noteworthy movie that's come out this year. It's Cash and Hobbs. Cash and Hobbs. And everybody is talking about it, especially on Twitter. My point is, we don't have to do horror movies if we don't want to. So this week, <laughs> we're doing sassy. Once upon a time in America. <laughs> that's not even. That's not even right. It's a totally different movie. Well, let's talk about that one. <laughs> I watched Once Upon a Time. There's another one. Once Upon a Time in, in Mexico. What if we the, all watch different ones? Oh my gosh, we all prepared for different the movies. West. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's that. What a comedy of errors. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Yes. Quentin Tarantino's ninth movie. Right. So he says. Is there one that doesn't count? Well, does it, not count? Kill Bill is, it depends on if you count that as one movie or two movies. He counts it as one movie. Isn't it three? Kill Bill? Yeah, wasn't there three of them? There's two of them. There are two Kill Bills. There's no volume three. Chris, I think there's three. Y'all are <laughs> fucking me right now. <laughs> no, oh, right? There's three? There was no, no. Kill Bill Volume 3. Oh my god, y'all are... I feel like one came out, and then quickly two and three came out. You guys are going to look really silly in a second. <laughs> Explain a plot point from Kill Bill Volume 3. Quickly. Isn't that when the old man shows up a lot? I like that Kill we're on the same Bill. page, though. That's Kill Bill Volume 2. There's two Yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I only see Volume 1 and 2 on Blu-ray. <laughs> I would volume bet. 3 doesn't exist. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no blue rays. Why did we think both think that? I've never been this confident about anything. That is crazy to me that y'all think there's a Kill Bill three. Voila right? Right. That means the madness of two. Feel left out. Anyway, once upon a time in Hollywood. Yes. And again, and and it does fall into our jurisdiction. Like we you talk don't have about. To apologize. It's your show. We talk about on the X Files jurisdiction. Yes. Because it's true crime. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's not a horror movie. No, <laughs> but it's a, it's a movie, and we talk about movies. So, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> That's gonna be our tagline now. It's a movie. We talk about movies. <laughs> I'm the, sorry, guys. What if we were just done with horror movies? We never talk about them again. Ooh, that a show. <laughs> so anyway, different episode, but we can still do our normal. You know, we're oh. still we're still on our bullshit, as they say. <laughs> so, what have you guys been watching? <laughs> well, Brian and I. Decided to watch a movie the other night. Ooh. And we watched An Old Chestnut. Mm. Is that the name of the movie? No. <laughs> no. Uh, a movie that we watched a lot. It's a, it's a documentary called Dig. Oh, the we watched that back yeah. in Road Circle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And um, that's why it's an old chestnut. Because <laughs> I was yeah. actually looking for collateral because I had listened to the blank check about it, and I couldn't find it. And I found Dig, and I was like, "Hey, that'd be fun." And so Dig is was it two thousand and four ish? Four. Is there a part well, three? I think it came out. It came out. I don't remember. <laughs> Wait a sec. Is there a part three? <laughs> oh, jeez. We got roasted. Such burns. So, and it's about... I'd like to talk about it. Actually, I was thinking about this. Okay. I have thoughts on Dig. So it's about two bands around late 90s. It's late 90s, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. So it's two rock and roll bands, and one, they're both kind of underground, and then one starts to hit it big, the Dandy Warhols, and one kind of goes up in flames, the Brian Jonestown Massacre. But what I was thinking about during it, and so is that there's these two bands, right? And in that time, late 90s, whenever that was, they're desperate, desperate to get like to the top of this mountain, right? Rock and roll thing not having any idea that this was a medium or a type of music that has become that is going to be like super not popular in just a few years oh like just like that 90s rock just rock and roll period i mean everything is hip-hop now i mean oh, yeah, new or, rock and roll bands really they don't really exist and so i thought it was i was thinking about this that they're fighting for this thing or desperate for this thing that they have no idea is kind of going to disappear pretty soon like at the time because i mean there's such the dominant type of music and they talk about it <laughs> with such importance in that movie it's like seeing it in a totally different context kind of understanding yeah. how music I would like and culture to watch changes that with that context that's that's that is kind of sad because i've thought about that a lot you know like because in you know i still listen to a lot of you know rock and roll or whatever you call it, alternative rock yeah I do too with sort of a consciousness like wow this is like not at all relevant <laughs> right or uh maybe relevance the wrong word but you know culturally of yeah. the moment i suppose like right so i've been trying to think like what was the last sort of relevant or big kind of rock record i don't know i mean maybe the I mean, I guess vampire like, weekend but that's not even that's like not rock. rock yeah probably like if you consider a cold play something like that i don't know if i consider it because they're like so in the pop vein yeah it uh, depends what you mean by big too like arcade fire the suburbs i mean that yeah. won the grammy for like yeah. best album so it, but i don't and of course even that was you know almost 10 years ago that last one was, was that, more, that long ago i don't know it's been a while but uh, oh, wow. it's been a while. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah so yeah i would like that because i think the last time i watched that movie was with you guys mm. and back then we were all you know rocking out <laughs> being yeah. we were all listening to the strokes yeah. still and yeah yeah so yeah and then also brian has been watching the ballad of buster scruggs oh yeah that's wonderful. Yeah, I don't that's know why I waited so I need long to, to watch yeah, that. I watch it kind of late too, but that's definitely one I feel like I need to see like four or five times so I can fully kind of. Yeah, every get it. little little short story is so good, and they're so simple too, but yeah. they're just so well made. I haven't seen it yet. You would love it. What have you been watching, Chris? So I would like to advocate. Um, this is a little bit different, but there's a show on MTV called Are You the One? Have y'all heard about this? No. no. Oh my god. So. I read about this uh, because it's like a, kind of an LGTB thing. So there's a dating show on MTV called Are You The One? Uh-huh. And the premise is usually it's all straight couples. And this time it's all pansexual couples or bisexual couples or um, gender fluid. They use like eight different words for them. They're bisexual. Okay. So that means the odds of them hooking up is like exponentially greater, right? Uh-huh. And so the idea is like, there's 16 people in this house, like a big brother, real world type house on the beach, of course. They're all like, you know, of course, beautiful and they're all bisexual. But the idea is that like 
psychologists have scanned them and like talked to them and talked to their exes and talked to their friends and figured out which of these people are their perfect matches, okay? What? Yes. Right. I mean it's it's fake, but just go with it. So so they're in the It's like clue. Yes. And so the idea they show is that they get this house and they're supposed to figure out who their perfect matches are. But they're bisexual, so instead of being like just oh. eight matches, there can be sixteen or whatever, whatever the math is. Yeah. So if if they find their perfect matches, they all get they get a million dollars. All right. What? So there's a financial motive. I mean, it's split between them. If they, I don't know what happens. If they don't do it, they don't get the money. Wait. Because. So there are sixteen people. So yeah. there are eight couples. Yeah. And so all eight have to find their perfect matches. Yeah. For them to, how do you do? You only get one choice. Like what, well, happens, so what happens? What happens is like every episode. So there's like more episodes than there are matches. So they have some time figured out. So every episode, people get sent to the truth booth. <laughs> <laughs> so in the truth booth, it like so like say like I think Kristen and Brian are for a match for whatever reason. Aww. Right. So like and because you guys have gone on dates, there's all this bullshit that happens on the show where people go on these dates and things like that. And so y'all go to the truth booth. You know we've selected you. Like we think that's them. And then they go in this room, and then it'll say, like, no match, which happens, like, every time. It's hilarious. <laughs> but they, the, through the process of elimination, they're able to figure out, okay, well, they're not matches, so... But, oh, so there's How not, like... How many chances do you get, though? Yeah, so it's not like anyone's eliminated? No, you no just, one's eliminated. But, and so then, eventually, you're going to get a match. I mean, all 16 people point, match. Yeah, at some point, you're going to match. And at the same time, they're all... It's an MTV show, and they're all 22, and they're all bisexual. So they're all just having sex with each other <laughs> and, and fighting and throwing margaritas. People show other's faces, and they have Twitter accounts, and I'm following all of them. <laughs> it is the best show. I mean, I look forward to it more than anything. And it's, like, critically acclaimed. Like, people, like, are talking about it. It's, like, the best sort of show of that type. I highly recommend it. So what are we drinking this time? That's not how you say it. Is it this time? And <laughs> that bugs you? Go ahead. It's difficult. So what are we drinking? This time. <laughs> so in honor of our movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I couldn't find any Chattanooga beer. Is that what he calls it? That that beer, the fake beer that they drink? I think it's called like Chattanooga beer. I think so, yeah. It's shown up in another movie, I yeah. think. And so we are going with... Frozen margaritas. Straight out of the pitcher. Straight out of the pitcher. It's my glass. We each have our own pitcher. <laughs> and uh, I made it a little spicy. It is super spicy. Yeah, I had a. I actually had to redo it completely because it was way too spicy. Actually, but so we're having frozen margaritas, just like Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. I want to live the Rick Dalton sun goes down life. <laughs> What does that mean? Well, I imagine me hanging out in my raft in the swimming pool. Nighttime with my headphones on. Rick Dalton. <laughs> ah, that, doesn't that look like the best? Yeah. He's just out there in his robe and his flip-flops, and he makes a pitcher of margaritas, <laughs> and he takes it out into the float on the pool yeah. and he while sings. he listens to his music yeah. with the headphones. Or he rehearses, yeah. Yeah, with the scenery, moon up above. So the scene opens with um, actually like a... I mean, it's like a little documentary about Rick Dalton being You've on seen The Incredibles. It is like The Incredibles, isn't it? Yeah. It is like The Incredibles. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I said it. Yeah. So, yeah, the movie basically opens with the, the trailer from the, you know, that shot from the trailer with right. the guy interviewing Dalton and um, Cliff Booth. Cliff Booth. Can we talk about his names? Those are great <laughs> names. Someone online said that they loved how Brad Pitt is a supporting character in this movie. Like, that's just kind of funny because that's entirely premised on his character being supporting, but he's 
Has just no, as much I don't street. Think, no, I don't just think as so. much. Are you disagreeing with me? Yeah, I am. I think as much, <laughs> just as much screen time as Leo, if not more so. Isn't he like a main star in a way? I don't think so. You got way more into to Leo's character and to Rick Dalton. All the scenes of him acting and everything and throwing tantrums and all that stuff. And, but even from a strategic perspective for the Oscars, you would want to put Brad Pitt for supporting and Leo for best actor. I don't actually disagree with that. But I just, I just think that's, you know, I think the whole idea that he's a supporting actor is just because he's, his character is supporting Yeah, you're Leo. right. You're right. He's, I mean, I, I don't think, think he's... So in as much as a movie, if not more so than Leonardo. I don't think so. Let's get into it. Our characters, Rick Dalton, Clip Booth, Rick Dalton's the fading, I was thinking, I keep wanting to say movie star, but he's really not a movie star, he's a TV star. Yeah. And Cliff Booth is um, sidekick slash stuntman, which, you know, what a great dynamic. I mean, I wonder, has that ever been in a movie before, do you think? You know, I know Tarantino's obsessed with stuntmen, you know, death proof. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and also... Um the famous stunt woman, Zoe, Zoe Bell. Bell. Yeah, yeah, who's all in this. Yeah. Also, Kurt Russell's in this. Right, who and, played a stuntman. And, yeah. Yeah. and I was wondering, like, and he looks, except for the scar from Death Proof, you know, but... Oh, he does, Which yeah. I, by the way, rewatched last week. And what an amazing movie. I do love that movie. But yeah, so we open the movie with, you know, this that, that great scene in the bar with uh, DiCaprio and Al Pacino. And, Al, and Pacino is basically laying out his... You know, his kind of filmography, his IMD page. You've done this, 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 this. And I thought, I mean, even though Al Pacino was in it for just a tiny bit, he was. I thought he was great. I liked seeing him. Did you? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I like seeing him and not seeing him, like, sort of overact like he yeah, kind of does, yeah. you know, doing the Pacino thing. What was the thing he did in Son of a Woman? Hoo-ah. Hoo-ah. <laughs> <laughs> he walked into the bar. Hoo-ah. <laughs> well, I was um, thinking about, you know, heat, you know, like, you know. Don't waste my motherfucking time. <laughs> <laughs> like when we, you know, like in when Friends came out and there was like a, you made your list of your five people that you could sleep with. Like Al Pacino and Godfather was always on mine. Is that where that came from? That came from Friends? Yeah. Oh. Al Pacino, Pacino from Godfather? <laughs> yes. Really? From Al Pacino. Pop, uh, no, yeah. He was hot, yeah. From Godfather, <laughs> yes. I mean, he's like five Harrison two. Harrison Ford so. <laughs> from Star Wars. But yeah, to me, those two aren't in the same ballpark. That's Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> in Titanic. In anything. Um, how do you, you think he looked in this movie? I thought he looked great. I liked it. I mean, he looked a little weathered. Yeah, um, I like it. Yeah. This is probably my favorite performance by his in a while. I mean, oh. I always like him, but he's okay. Brian, you talk about that. Ooh, okay, good. Yeah, I felt the same way. This is the first thing I've seen him in, I mean, a long time. Where one, where it just didn't seem like Leonardo DiCaprio in a costume. Like this, it it really felt like Rick Dalton was a real person, like a real character. And I went long spans of time without thinking, oh, look, there's Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, And I I liked him more in this than I think I've ever liked him in anything. I mean, I haven't seen What's Eating Gilbert Grape in a long time. That's like his main thing. But I liked him more in this than any of the other kind of mature DiCaprio Scorsese type things which yeah. I just never liked that's a good point I love him in everything not even just because I love him like deep down but from because of being like a young we're surrounded by DiCaprio posters <laughs> right now as we speak did I show you that folder I found in mine the other day I was going through my old stuff no did you see it on Instagram I think so yeah, that was it, a few weeks back right yeah it was just laminated pages of Leonardo DiCaprio cut out of magazines <laughs> from when I was a teenager he was all over my locker but even beyond, like, 
I got I got over that. He's not Jack Dawson anymore. I'll never let go. <laughs> I loved him in The Aviator. I thought he was so good. I didn't think of him. I thought it was. I mean, it's not. I never thought he was bad, but I was never. I was yeah. never blown away. But in this, I, I could have watched him a million hours. Yeah. I guess my thing with him, and this is, I think this is kind of what you're getting at, is like every time you see him, it's like Leonardo DiCaprio. Like you can't. He's right. so Leo. <laughs> It's like watching Angelina Jolie or something. Like, there's such a huge personality right. that you yeah, can't yeah. quite separate that from... Pussy Patrol. <laughs> but oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, and, you know? and you see all the work he's putting into it. Like, you watch The Revenant. Like, you know all the shit behind it. And like, how Right. We, I never watched that. Uh, I, I never saw it either. Good. I don't it's, like it. It seems painful. I mean, it seems what? like a hard watch. Who was the other main actor? In oh, the Tom Hardy's Tom Hardy. And, okay. and Tom Hardy's a lot of fun. Leonardo, yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio is wonderful in it, but he's also, you see, it's like watching someone do homework. And you're like, you just see him, his Austrian pain and his work, and it's like, you kind of know this, it's just this whole thing. Uh, Whereas in this movie, it's like, oh, it's just an actor. And right. like, yeah, all that, he's just so, maybe it's just Tarantino. Although, really, though, it was kind of like in Django and Chain, that was just a little bit conscious of DiCaprio being. Yeah, I was totally. It yeah. just always felt like DiCaprio doing an accent. Right. Or is this one, it's like, oh, maybe he's sort of finally kind of found his thing. Well, even though I love Leonardo DiCaprio, even outside of Titanic and everything, I, I didn't really love him in Django. Like, it wasn't something that, like, everyone was talking about it like it was this great thing, but. That wasn't my favorite. Yeah, I felt the same way I did about him as I did about Brad Pitt and Inglorious Bastards. Like Brad Pitt still just doesn't feel right in that movie. It still just always seems like Brad Pitt doing an accent, same as Leonardo DiCaprio and Django Unchained. Yeah, but yeah, Brad yeah, Pitt's yeah, accent in Inglorious Bastards is so bad that uh, it's almost endearing to me. <laughs> and also, I don't think he's supposed to be like the main. To me, like that movie is all about Christoph Waltz, you know, like and like. No, I totally agree, yeah. and so it just seems odd to have Brad Pitt doing that. It just kind of it's the only thing I don't like about the movie. It I love that kind of throws so the thing off. I love it too. Yeah. I just don't. I wish somebody other than Brad Pitt was in that role. Anyway, DiCaprio is a wonderful in this movie. He, especially when he's you know, acting as acting like maybe that's the truth yeah that blew me away <laughs> yeah the scene when he's like with the little girl right jeez yeah it's yeah. so good he does such a good job and it's so impressive because before that he seemed so vulnerable and so falling apart sometimes right and, and I like the idea that you know once I kind of you know once they lay the foundation that he's like this fading actor and he's kind of on the decline you would expect that the the big scene to be him just failing horribly right, <laughs> at, right, his, at right. his job, which it, it, they kind of do that a little bit, but not really. He just kind of like, he's just kind of drunk. The fact that they actually just show him having a good day, like a, a day he's like proud of, right. like, oh, he's actually a good actor. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah that, that's how I thought too. At first, I thought it was going to be that, oh, he's actually an asshole or he's actually not talented or something. Yeah. And it, no, he's just a. He's kind of neither of those things. Yeah. He's just, you know, hard out of luck actor and you know maybe he'll do good he'll probably not get a big movie but he'll do good work on tv shows and some days he'll go home happy i love my favorite scene in the movie is actually him and brad pitt going home that day after brad pitt's had his spawn his spawn ranch experience and leo's had his great day on set you know and they're just going home and leo's kind of smiling in the car just like oh had a good day at work and i thought at first for sure it was going to be that leo was mean to him or or put put him down but no like like brian said after the movies just no they're just buddies 
So anyway, I guess we kind of jumped the gun, but I mean, like, obviously, I love this movie. I imagine. I mean, what do you guys think generally about it? I mean, did I it loved it. I, I loved it so much. Um, I thought it was perfect. I didn't have any criticisms or anything about it at all. I, I just enjoyed every second of it. I mean. So Brian, you were saying that you really liked the setting. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of my favorite things. I think is that. Um, just being in that environment, it does such a great job of creating that that scene, that environment, you know, that you really feel like you're kind of in the late 60s there. And it's so specific to that world, like they only kind of barely hint at like the rest of the world, you know, like you kind of hear on the radio, they talk about Vietnam a little bit, but it just seems like it, it just feels so Formative isolated and, and secluded, yeah. right? Yeah, you're just in this sunny world where the only problems are whether I'm going to get that part, right? <laughs> or, or whether I'm going to be sober enough to read my lines, you know, even though like these are really important things to him in the grand scheme of things, it still feels pretty um, not all that important, so the the stakes don't feel super high. I was wondering how he recreated those streets so well, but apparently a lot of those places are still there, yeah. like the Cinemadrome or whatever it was called, and the, the certain movie theaters are still the same ones that have been there. So that was interesting. Yeah, I saw online someone had posted uh, just a photo of just you know they just shut down all the streets, even the right. interstate, which I guess is not too uncommon out in LA. But, right. But it redressed it a little bit, but I think most of it, like that movie theater. That Margot Robbie goes to, you can watch Once Upon a Time at that movie theater. It kind of made a big deal. Oh, that's neat. But also just the way he shot it. Like, there are long shots, right? Even when the car is driving, it, it follows the car, and it shows, you know, Brad Pitt kind of weaving in and out around oh, the cars yeah, yeah. and everything. The way that, that he films that, where it, it, if I remember it, it's kind of like long, unbroken shot. So it just kind of feels, it, it feels more immersive, you know? It feels less like a movie, I guess. Yeah. How did anyone survive that movie the way they were all driving they were all just like speeding around I know. And it was great i think that's part of it too is that it, it just felt it just felt like there's so much freedom with no consequences oh you know? yeah yeah i mean i guess it makes more sense that cliff was driving a little crazy because he's a stunt man but right. even roman plancy was just zooming around those hills yeah. and crisscrossing across traffic and then i did like roman plansky's uh, nighttime outfit <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think did he really dress like that? I guess that was a sixties yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I think even like when he got married, I saw a picture of them, and it was something like that. Yeah, I mean that's just bizarre. She's you know she looks fantastic, and he's like comes down like Dracula. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, it looks like Austin Powers. <laughs> right, right. That's even worse. Yeah. So that's that's so crazy. <laughs> How could that possibly be attractive? <laughs> and so let's talk about uh, Margot Robbie, Sharon Tate role, and and the kind of controversy around it and stuff. So. I just now found out there was a controversy just last night. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. I mean, controversy might be overstating yeah, it, yeah, but probably. it's something I heard about before even seeing the movie, which was huh. this idea that Margaret Robbie, uh, you know, is, she's third build, you know, right behind mm-hmm. Leo and Brad Pitt. But she, th- there's this idea that she maybe is like has nothing to do or has no dialogue, or uh, and that's because she's you know the woman lead, and that Tarantino kind of gave all the juicy stuff to Brad Pitt and and Leonardo. Hmm. And so I think even at a press conference, maybe at like the Cannes Film Festival or something, uh, a, a reporter actually just asked him, asked Quentin Tarantino, like some version of that, like, well, why doesn't Margot Robbie have anything to do with this movie? And he tersely replied, I reject your hypothesis and never said anything else at <laughs> the press conference. <laughs> and, uh, and that's kind of what started the, the conversation. I don't think she needs that. 
not that Margot Robert doesn't deserve more lines or whatever she wants, but that character, she plays it so well that you feel like you know her and you love her and you kind of get everything you need from yeah. that without her doing speeches or... Well, I also liked it too because it wasn't... There wasn't anything going on in her life. There wasn't a big crisis like Rick Dalton was having. She was just living her life. She was going to the movies to see her movie. She was hanging out with her friends. There wasn't any reason to elaborate on that. Well, I think that that kind of just showed that this is just a normal person living her life. Yeah, I mean, her performance is not dialogue-driven, but she's very, I mean, she's very present throughout the whole movie. Yes. And, and, I mean, you you know, he cuts between her, Brad Pitt, and Dalton. And and they're obviously the the bigger roles, for sure. But, I mean, I don't think you have the same movie without her at all. Uh, Also, a question we had, why even include the Manson murders? I guess my question is more, you know, like this is kind of like a chicken and egg thing. Did, do you think Tarantino started out wanting to write about the Manson murders in some form or fashion, you know, culturally? Mm-hmm. Or did he start out wanting to write about these, you know, B-movie actors, B-TV show actors, I guess, and then wove the Manson murders into that? Or I'm just, you know, it's, it's a weird idea. Like, yeah, you know, it is. It's really interesting. Because, I mean, you, if you're going to touch the Manson murders at all, I mean, it's, you're kind of, it's kind of a lightning rod. Yeah. Right. He's, you know, he seemed to have gotten away. I mean, Sharon Tate's sister has sort of blessed the project, so. Yeah, I saw that she let her, um, Margot actually borrow some of Sharon's jewelry, and I didn't know that she was, like, on board for this, because I didn't, I didn't know what the ending was. I had no idea. Right. No clue. The whole movie, which made it so much more emotional, because, like, I think I know all about the Manson murders, and I hear, oh, this is text. I'm like, oh, I know who that is, and I know what's going to happen, and... But then you really see, like, Sharon, and it made it so much sadder. And it's like, I, I was getting to the point where the end of the movie is like, I don't want to see this part. Right. I don't, I I don't think know if I could do it. That's what was so fantastic about, is it Margot Robbie or Robbie? Because I never feel right when I'm saying it. <laughs> I want to say Robbie. Robbie. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go with that. Um, you just call her Margot. Like I was saying, I feel like the fact that she doesn't have a ton of lines kind of adds to the the impact of the role, right? Because she's just kind of happy and sunny and fun and enjoying her life and like all the good things that she's always wanted, they're starting to happen, you know? And so if you kind of know where that real story ends, like there's always this sense of kind of sadness about it to me anyway when I was watching it like oh, she's yeah. enjoying her life so much and everything is so wonderful but you kind of know where that's going right you know how it's going to end and so there's this extra depth to every scene that she's in um, that that was really powerful but I'm glad I had no clue so we were saying Brad Pitt top notches is that a term? Nope. <laughs> Are you, as an actor, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Leonardo DiCaprio. Top notches. Tip top. <laughs> Aces. <laughs> they were all great. They were all so good. Yes. And then even the supporting characters were great. I mean, the guy who played Bruce Lee. Right. I did see that controversy. Right. I kind of get I mean, I kind of get that a little bit. When I first saw that scene, I thought, ooh, this could be you know troubling for some people but i was really confused because i thought i I thought because that was during when brad pitt is up on the roof and it i wasn't sure if he was reminiscing or if he was fantasizing because the fact that he beat up bruce lee made me think well this is a fantasy because you're not going to beat up bruce lee but no when we talked about it after it did seem like he was reminiscing about an event that happened yeah i think it's yeah it's definitely reminiscing although i mean that's interesting that maybe he did embellish it in his own mind though but uh when I watched it again... Oh, you've seen it twice? Oh, yeah. Oh. I went and saw it again. I want to go see it again. Um, 
but when I watch it again, he doesn't he doesn't beat him up at the end. Like they actually do come to a draw. So yeah, that's what I was telling Brian. Well, it kind of ended though with him throwing Bruce Lee into. I mean, if you had to vote who got the the better of the other, I would yeah, say Brad yeah. Pitt definitely got the better. Well, round one was Bruce Lee kicking him. <laughs> round two was he throws him into the car. Right. But then round three is they're they're you know just giving it to each other. Then they get cut off. Right. Yeah. And I, I guess I just think that's wrong. That <laughs> Bruce Lee. And would really just kind of beat the shit out of the stuntman. I mean, I, so, but anyway. Yeah. But they did seem, I could kind of get the controversy there. Like, if you're a, a big Bruce Lee person or a family member of Bruce Lee, it doesn't paint him in a very positive light. Yeah, but then later, um, like, it shows him training uh, Sharon Tate yeah. and, you know, their friends. So that mm-hmm. kind of, right. like, oh, he's just kind of person. I just think he's just showing that Bruce Lee was not, you know, some untouchable deity. I mean, was he supposed to be, like, in real life, was he like arrogant like that or no that, idea oh. I, but he was just kind of I mean that was basically his TV show like it was the Green Hornet right so mm-hmm. he was Kato so he was just kind of holding court backstage he was I didn't notice until the second time that Brad Pitt kind of makes fun of his you know karate noises oh yeah so I was yeah. like oh okay they really <laughs> maybe, mm-hmm. maybe people should be mad <laughs> <laughs> well that's because uh, I guess the Brad Pitt character is uh, complicated I mean he's kind of an ass I mean well, yeah, I mean he he probably murdered his wife and we have to bring that into yeah all right what do we think about that so they kind of hinted that he had the like the harpoon gun right there right right yeah (laughs) the character's name his wife was natalie did you know that was rebecca gayhart no yeah that's her oh Hmm. wow and i was i wonder if that's some kind of you know play on the whole natalie wood situation and yeah i think it has to be with um yeah what's his face um Christopher Walken? Yeah. No. Christopher Walken was on there. He was on the boat. Yeah. Shut up. I didn't know that. Yeah. Who's the main guy, though? Um, was it Robert Wagner? Yeah, that sounds right. So I get that that whole idea of whether he murdered his wife. I mean, I think it's supposed to be kind of like the you know the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. You know, Tarantino's mm-hmm. not going to say whatever. But, I mean, do you think he murdered his <laughs> <laughs> pretty... The way he... I don't know who, if yeah, that was him remembering it or if it was just an actual well, that's flashback. that's the idea because... Okay, so he's remembering the first... This is like Inception. Okay, so he's on the roof and he's reminiscing about his days on set on Green Hornet and being rejected for, you know, that job because he beats up Bruce Lee or... You oh, know, right. Wait, and, and I liked that too because, again, I wasn't <coughs> sure where they were going with the relationship with Leo and Brad or if he was lying to him right. about not getting him a job. And then I just love whenever he then he stops and thinks back and then he, at the end they cut back to Brad Pitt and he's just like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's why I didn't get the job. Yeah, and then enough. you're like, oh, okay. So you slowly start to learn that, no, this seems to be a real... They're, they're friends. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess whether it did or not, maybe... I mean, does it really inform the ending, maybe? like? Oh, that maybe he is capable of murder. Brutally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's kind of the point of all the Bruce Lee stuff, really, though, is that it kind of demonstrates that he's a badass not to be trifled with, right? And so then when it comes to ass-kicking yeah, sure. time at the end... Yeah, well, I was more thinking the about the it. brutality of, you know, what he does to the, the, the girls, you know. Oh, you know, yeah. Like slamming the girl's head on yeah. the counter. Mm. Well, that's pretty extreme, so maybe they're saying, oh, maybe he's yeah. a little bit... Of course, he's also high, he was on, high out of his mind. Oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily think we're supposed to know whether he killed his wife, but I, yeah, I, I don't think so either. And I don't really. I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with how it's left. I do want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's the same way you want to know: Did Robert Wagner kill Natalie Wood, or did Sam Shepard actually kill his wife? He <laughs> killed JFK. Exactly, and so it's just kind of it's another thing that's left up that we don't know. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I love the idea that, um, you know, because this is a couple of days in the lives of all these characters. So day two, we have, you know, Margot Robbie going to see Watch Yourself in the Movies. Right. We have Brad Pitt going to Spawn Ranch, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. And then we have Leonardo on the, I guess it's a TV show set for a TV show that apparently really exists. I can't think of the name of right now. Yeah, the scene where he and uh, and the little the girl, the little girl actress, talk about the, you know the books they're reading is mm-hmm. an all timer. Yeah, that's such yeah. a good scene. It's so good. Yeah, when you combine that with a scene after that when he's acting as the character and he's this terrible, scary, horrible person, right? Um, it, it really drives home what a good actor both Leonardo DiCaprio is and then his character Rick Dalton is because up until that you haven't. We've seen him in like clips of TV shows and stuff that he's been in, but it's always kind of cheesy stuff. Yeah. Like there's never really acting there, it doesn't seem like. And so this is the first time we really see what a talented performer he really is. Maybe he is like this super, super talented person, but his own, like he's just been destroying his career through his own behavior. Like maybe he could have been great, an amazing actor, a really successful movie star if he didn't drink and do drugs and just generally fuck things up all oh the yeah time. yeah because they had that great scene of when timothy oliphant asked him about getting that steve mcqueen part and then actually cgi all right that was in. interesting yeah. yeah and so it is like maybe he is thinking maybe he's obviously imagining that himself in that role if he would have cleaned up a little more i love the scene when he gets so mad at himself in the trailer afterwards yeah. and he was like why'd yeah. you drink atrix just stop before. Eight whiskey sours. <laughs> right. Eight whiskey sours. That was so good. That whole sequence. Him with the little girl when they're just reading the books, and then when he loses it in his dressing room, and then when he gets it together and goes out and does a great performance. Jeez. Yeah. I think my favorite, one of the funniest lines to me is when he's talking to the little girl and you know he's telling her about the books, the Western and the sad story and, and the, the faded out cowboy. <laughs> And she goes like you know something like I can't even imagine that kind of sorrow and and he says well in 15 years you'll be living <laughs> right <laughs> yeah I fell out of my chair <laughs> uh, also I like that kind of laugh that DiCaprio gives in the movie this you know sort of <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, he just it kind of shows he just he's probably not too bright but you know he's right he has a big heart. Yeah. yeah, and also like in in real life, the the character Rick Dalton, when he's interacting with people, he kind of has a stutter. Like oh, he kind yes. of can't get words out, you know. Yeah. And so you wonder, like they really establish that a lot before you see him act, and you think, how is he ever? How does he read lines? How is this going to work? And he's just masterful when it's actually time to perform. But he clearly, when he's not performing, just can't get it together. And that stutter that Leo does, I mean it doesn't seem like it seems like that's just how he talks it's so good yeah i kind of see what tarantino is doing more with the the movie set so like uh you know the the dicaprio stuff happens on a you know functioning western set you know supposed to like in the sort of last days of you know this genre or maybe this history and but you know it's fully functioning you kind of get a day in the life of what's going on and then he you know, kind of contrasts that with a spawn ranch movie set yeah which yeah. i kind of keep forgetting oh yeah that's why it was a movie set yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so I, I you know i wonder if that's sort of uh the genesis of how we started linking you know the whole manson thing to the hollywood thing tarantino would have been living in la yeah in 69 right was he a no, kid he was like four or five i read yeah because um, um, that's what i first thought was he even alive back then but he was and he says he remembers driving around and seeing those you know those signs and uh, some of that was based on memory. Mm-hmm. So he's Quentin Tarantino is like fifty five. Yeah. Wow. So I don't know. I didn't really pick up on that. Yeah, that's the really interesting. 
Well, yeah, and so I liked also how... Thank you. So, <laughs> so Cliff Booth is, he drops off Leo, and he's driving around. He's got things to do. The young girl wants to be picked up again. Who we were talking about is the girl from The Leftovers, yes, which we yeah. didn't recognize. Pussycat. Yeah. Which there was a Manson member named Kitty, so I'm wondering if that's just like a, a play on her, yeah. but not exactly her. But instead of picking up like the, the hot teenager, he's like, nope, I got to go fix that antenna first. He's like, all business... You know, he goes and gets his work done first. Um, because you keep thinking, well, you know he's going to get out there. Yeah. So then he comes back, and then he picks her up, and, and then they go out there. And he's willing to drive her out there because he has memories there. And he used to actually shoot movies there. Yeah, this is probably one of those things where I wonder if you don't have, like, you know, those passing knowledge for the whole Manson thing, like how all this plays, you know. Because like, I've been telling, like, my brother, you know, texts me, and you want to go see him, like, just Wikipedia Manson, though, because there's a lot of stuff you just won't get. Yeah. So I wonder, like, even the Spawn Ranch stuff. I mean, they, they don't necessarily go out of the way to explain the significance of, you know, what all is going on out there. I think that that was a smart idea. If you can't get into, like, Manson and all of yeah. his crazy ideas without derailing the whole movie, I think. So they kind of just put it in the background. And I, I think enough people know what the Manson murders were, that they have a general idea. Yeah, I mean, it definitely depends on your knowledge of all that. That's kind of what I'm saying. But I mean, I I guess you kind of get the point that they're all living on this ranch because um, the owner is old and blind. Yeah. And I think they explain that pretty well. And then, uh, but if you didn't know much about that, that scene when um, Brad Pitt was going to the house was kind of scary because I didn't know... Again, this is a fictional character, so I didn't know if Brad Pitt was going to die. They're going to kill him there. Because there was a... We're not going to get into the true crime yet, but there was a stuntman right. who worked on the farm, I mean, worked on the ranch, um, who they murdered. And so I was thinking, oh, is Brad Pitt going to be that character? So that whole time at the ranch was... I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So I thought he was going to be... that. That, that was going to be the first murder we see. That's what I kept thinking, that Brad Pitt was not going to make it out of there. But he finds Bruce Dern, and it's kind of what is actually happening is what they say. They squeaky sleeps with him or whatever, and takes care of him, and they get to stay on the farm or the ranch. Yeah, which is apparently that's accurate. That's actually what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. So Dakota Fanning plays Yeah, I did squeaky. not know that was Dakota Fanning when I, I watched it. Yeah. And Squeaky from <coughs> was one of the... Um, more docile members like she didn't participate in any of the murders she really did just take care of George why is she so famous like that's one of the names I know because she's the one who tried to assassinate Gerald Ford oh should have locked her up (laughs) yeah Yeah. so she went to prison for she had she brought like a a giant gun out and tried to shoot Gerald Ford and it didn't go off and Mm. then she went to prison and she was released like in 2009 hmm good I should see if she wants to be on the podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, they called her Squeaky because when George would pinch her, she'd squeak, which is creepy because that's an old man and she's probably like 15. But anyway. Uh. <laughs> and so all the members had um, nicknames. Yeah, I think what I read online, not having you know perfect recall of all that, was that pretty much all the members in the movie were real people except for... Um, pussy to talk, pussy cat, right? Or whatever her name is. Yeah, I just think she was invented for the movie. So but even Lena Dunham was actually a gypsy. Yeah, yeah. But the, the the rest of them, and of course, Tex is obviously a big one. I do like how I mean. So the set, the scene on Spawn Ranch, you know, they, they all seem fairly you know, menacing and kind of mysterious. 
but I do kind of appreciate how by the time you get to the ending, not the very ending, but when they're kind of leading up to the the killing, is you know he, you know they they kind of come off as a little bit buffoonish. You know, mm-hmm. they, they kind of would have been just a bunch of dumbasses in a way. Like, yeah. Well, uh, they also were coked out of their minds. Right. Yeah. Well, what do you think about the decision just to barely have Manson in it at all? Like, you know, he's in that one scene, of course. Yeah, I thought that was great. So I didn't care to see him much more in that movie, especially when you have so many other great characters. And like, like in Mindhunter season two coming up, he's going to be in it. And it's like, well, okay, that's, I want to see that. I want to see him being portrayed by the same actor, which I think is fascinating. What? The same actor who plays Manson in this plays Manson in Mindhunter. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> so weird. Isn't it? Um, and so uh, that's more of a context. Okay, we're looking at it in 1970 or whatever. We're typecasting. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, but I didn't think that... I think you kind of got all you need to know. It must be weird if you just have no framework for what that event was all about and you go in and watch that movie. Yeah, what do you think? I think it's a totally different experience if you don't... It, like, I don't know a ton about the Manson murders. I just know, you know, the kind of broad overview yeah. that, that most people know. Um, and that was, to me, enough. Um, okay. But I think if you have no idea... Like, if you don't know anything about those, like, if you don't know ultimately what happens to Sharon Tate, then I think it's a totally different movie. Yeah, then sure. those movies, yeah. those yeah. scenes with her just don't carry much significance. They're just kind of a pretty girl doing things that make her happy, right? There's no yeah. sense of Cause, doom know, I, surrounding it. You know, I guess in the theater, I'm looking around, there's a few, like, fairly young people, and I'm just like, well, did they know about this? Is well, this our babysitter, when we came mm-hmm. home... Um, from the movie we told her what we saw and she's 17 or whatever and she said oh yeah me and my mom and my sister went to that and we left about an hour in oh really yeah because yeah. like with the the charles manson thing not being in it one i don't think it, it could be in it just because there's not room for another big character it's already two hours and 45 minutes you know you're not really gonna have time to develop a whole other character but also it serves the purpose of him just kind of lurking in the background, you know? Like, yeah, there's always the yeah. sense that he's always there. And I think that also heightens the, the Sharon Tate stuff when you see her, is that you know, kind of lurking, like, literally and kind of figuratively, figuratively um, is, is Manson. You yeah, know? and then he, also, he actually shows up to her house. I mean, she sees him. Right, yeah. Which actually happened in real life. Well, so I guess after uh-huh. they cut... A few months or so, right? They cut like six months. Oh, right, yeah. right. Because it wasn't February. The murders aren't until August. Right. They show how Rick decided to go to Rome. And, and so Tarantino apparently, I mean, he's a big... Spaghetti Western fan. Yeah. Yeah. Did you notice uh, I'm, the second time I watched it, um, the director of the movie, the fake director of the movie is something like um, something Margariti, uh-huh. which is the name of the... One of the Inglorious Bastards, right? When they're when he's pretending to be a director at yeah. the end, and he's they're doing that fake to be accent. Italian? Yeah. It's like something Margaretti. <laughs> yeah. So I think he's pretending to be that director, that right, director. Right, right, So I was proud of myself for catching <laughs> that. I mean, I just watched Inglorious Bastards a few nights ago, so otherwise I would not have ever noticed that. <laughs> right. Um, but but yeah. it's it's fun. Him and Cliff go, and Cliff works in the movie, and they spend time in Rome, and he makes some movies. He gets a hot wife. Yeah grows his hair out yeah. becomes more of a hippie I love when they actually come back you know on the flight and they just kind of repeat this scene from the, the beginning of the movie when Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski arrive you know like they kind mm-hmm. of right. emerge fabulously from the airplane and they're all in their new clothes and I want to talk about the ending but th- I also wanted to get your thoughts on the the kind of conservative versus hippie thing right that's yeah. kind of I mean, so that's, that's kind of a thing right yeah. and 
Um, I don't really have any thoughts about it, but it, it seems like there's something there, right? Like these are very Leo and Brad Pitt in this movie. They're very they're conservative guys. They're um, um, the, like the establishment kind of at least compared to like the hippie type so is this a thing is there something there worth talking about where you have this kind of old guard conservatives versus hippie movement i think it was definitely i mean i think there's two things i think one he wants to show that's one way of just showing the passing of the times that you know leo is so concerned about you know Mm -hmm. this sort of and these other people are coming up are completely foreign to him. Even this idea that he has a dress like what he calls a hippie on set that day. Mm-hmm. And right. That director, that who, who, I wonder who that actor is that plays the director. <laughs> he is so good. Yeah. Right. Um, but he would obviously be completely, you know, foreign to DiCaprio. And, and so I think part of it's that. But also I think that's just sort of an honest portrait of that time for probably what Tarantino was trying to capture was, you know, like everybody was kind of having mm-hmm. those concerns, you know, wouldn't necessarily be just... Right. So one of Leo. Or, it's like a big thing in Mad Men, too. Like, that's a big part right. of Mad Men. Yes. Similar storyline. So I don't think it necessarily shows, say, how conservative or old school they are. It's, it's more that they were they were probably just reflecting the fairly conventional mindset at that time. But so you don't feel like this is a commentary on 2019 um, life conservatives? I didn't yay. think that, but that's interesting. Yeah. Liberal well, taboo. Well, I also read something. I think the title of the thing was like Tarantino wants to make America great again or something. He's trying to say that. Oh no! I, don't, I mean, I guess I didn't. That, that wasn't really something that really registered with me. But uh, that is interesting. I'll, I'll have to find out what people are saying about that. I did um, before we get to the ending. I highly recommend that everyone read this piece on Vulture that just talks about how great the macaroni and cheese sequences. <laughs> the macaroni oh, and che- oh, with the dog. Yeah. Oh, the dog. That's like the other big character. Oh yeah, she's great. Yeah, but the scene where um, Brad Pitt early on in his trailer makes the mac and cheese. Someone wrote a whole like essay about how fantastic that is and. <laughs> How the next night they went home and ate mac and cheese out of a pot and, <laughs> and pretended they were Cliff Booth. Right. And, uh, and even they even went down to the way he makes it. They're like, who drains the noodles in a mac and cheese? <laughs> and they're like, we're going to. And they, he said he went home and tried that immediately and it didn't taste as good, but he just felt like Rick Booth. So. Yeah, Cliff that's Booth. an interesting thing about how they consume their food at their, their homes. They, yeah. they aren't um, so much into taking the foods or the drinks and taking them from the big container to the cup or the, the bowl. <laughs> it's like, I'll drink out of the pitcher, I'll eat out of the pot. Yeah. But I mean, Brad Pitt sitting in the couch, you know, eating out of the pot with his, you know, and it's not, it's like a Miller High Life or something. It's not mm-hmm. that, but it's something, I mean, right. that's that's just a mood for sure. No, I mean, it's the fake, the <laughs> yeah. Chattanooga beer. It's the Chattanooga beer. It's the fake beer. And he's then. eating like with a, a wooden spoon or right. something, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and the, uh, of course, have it all the, figured out. The prepping the dog food, which actually made me nostalgic, because I remember that kind of yeah. dog food for um, when I was a yeah. kid. Yeah, so gross, but yeah, I remember that too. My dog, my, we had a <laughs> mixed husky that would have... That would eat that stuff. But that reminded me of the John Mulaney bit, you know, when he talks about how he's trying to get control over his dog. And so the, the dog person says that they have to eat dinner first to show control, you know? <laughs> I and don't so, remember that. Oh, so so him and his wife, but the dog eats at like 5 p.m. So at 4 p.m. they have to pretend they're eating. <laughs> remember? And they're like, mm, this is so good. Because they have to show dominance over the dog. So that's what he's doing. He's oh, eating first. And oh, then okay. letting his dog eat, which is apparently what you're supposed to do. And so that reminded me of that John Mulaney bit, too. Oh, funny. I loved where he lived. Like, behind yeah. the drive-in in a Silver Bullet trailer with a cool dog. I mean, that seemed pretty cool, you know? <laughs> That's pretty badass. He yeah. just puts, probably puts the, his little lawn chair out, sits out, and drinks yeah. beer at night. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's no um, pool. You, yeah, you want the pool. <laughs> 
I'll live in the trailer. Yeah, I'll have my pitcher of margaritas in the pool with, on my float. <laughs> the first third of the movie was one thing, and then it seemed to kind of change. There started to be voiceover and like narration, and I was like, where right. is this going? Yeah, the storytelling, for the last the last big sequence, the storytelling, storytelling structure kind of changed, right? So yeah. it becomes more, it starts, and I, I really liked that too. It scared me at first, but so it starts to have a, um, it starts to have a voiceover, and so you know that can kind of feel like a crutch sometimes, right? It kind of feels like okay, they don't know how to tell the story well with the characters, so they had to insert this voiceover at the end to tie it together. Which is what I said about Talent Red Sundown. That's what one of my oh, complaints right. was. Yeah. And so the one that started, I thought of that, and I was like, what are we doing here? But then it it starts to make sense because then it shifts into what feels like a true crime movie, right? right? Yeah, it I starts to feel like right, yeah. And so then I got into it. I was like, oh, I get it now. So this is now true crime. They're now telling the story of this day kind of minute by minute. Right. You know? And that's another thing where I wonder, like, if you have knowledge of what's happening, does how much... Because I, for, I, don't, like, I was confused, too, because I guess you're supposed to realize, okay, this is like the final night. But mm-hmm. that's not really immediately apparent if you just don't really know what August... I mean, they, I think even gets a date if you... August 9th. Right. Yeah, if you yeah. don't quite know the significance of that, because I, I mean, I didn't remember the date that the murders happened. Yeah, I yeah, didn't know the date either, either but once they... <laughs> Chris is checking our calendar. <laughs> But once they shifted to that voiceover, that true crime feel, I thought, yeah. okay, shit, this is this is when it happens. Yeah, so I, that, I, I think that's supposed to be more obvious than... I, mean, I think that's an example of Tarantino assuming the audience has more knowledge than maybe they do. Because hmm. uh, I think you're supposed to immediately almost sit up, okay, okay, here we are. Yeah. But I think that's why the, the voiceover works, is because yeah. even if you don't know that, that date, the voiceover starts to hammer at home. Like, yeah. okay, we've shifted now, things are, are serious, this is when stuff's really going to start happening, which makes it all the more impactful when the story goes in a totally different direction because yeah. you think this is going to be like a minute by minute retelling of what happened yeah but it's really I, I just was... that one scene and if you think about it uh, i mean tarantino has a habit of his in his last few movies of doing that some sort of kind of random narration like three quarters of the way into the movie and mm. then he just kind of goes away mm. like where samuel jackson narrates why the the film is flammable when *Inglorious Bastards*, and there's like, so there's like that ten seconds of narration. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, *Hateful Eight, Tarantino starts narrating about it halfway through. <laughs> oh, I haven't made it that far. Yeah. I haven't watched that. <laughs> um, yeah, don't watch the Netflix version. Watch the the film version. Right. I, I, I started about. watching the film version. Mm-hmm. I made it about an hour, and yeah, yeah it's good to do it in chunks. Yeah. But yeah, so final night. And so, well, the whole the night's set up, and so. Sharon Tate and her friends go out to eat, which is pretty, uh, allegedly what they really did. They don't know for sure, but they went to the El Coyote place. And something else interesting was like there really was a thing going on at the theater down the street that um, Sharon Tate points at. You oh, know? the dirty movie premiere. Yeah, that oh, was really happening. Uh, and I, and actually, that. Tarantino owns that theater, whatever oh. that theater is. Hmm. So that was uh, so they go out that night. Earlier, Rick has a heart to heart with Cliff and lets him know he can't keep them employed oh right that's this so this is like their last hurrah kind of yeah this, so yeah. they say they're gonna they're gonna get blindly drunk and so they do <laughs> they go out to eat and they get drunk and then they come home and they drink more then we see the manson family that's come out and they come down the street in their car yeah with their horrible muffler rick comes out and confronts them and gets really mad yeah which you know dicaprio is so good at scene, but <laughs> yes. he's slurping from his margarita uh, <laughs> Blender, uh, and you know, basically confronts them as hippies, not necessarily yeah. as you know. Well, I mean, I guess maybe potential up no good, but he doesn't seem to think they're doing anything but smoking pot out in the. Right. I think he actually says that. So, but because he does that, 
uh, you know, one of them, maybe Susan Atkins, recognizes him as you know Rick Dalton, right. you know, an actor. Right. Mm-hmm. Moment where she goes, "Well, I was just thinking about how you know Hollywood and TV shows have taught us how to murder, so we should murder them." So, I think the reason they go to Cliff's house instead of Sharon Tate's house is because they've yeah. clued in the fact that he's right. an actor, and, and so they want to. So it's not just that DiCaprio is like rude to them or yells at them; it's specifically that he's an actor, which is like you know what the whole movie's you know, mm-hmm. kind of about. So that's interesting, right? Yeah. So the Manson family—they're going to go up the up the street. They're going to oh, yes. start and murdering so, folks. And so what we have is we have Susan Atkins, who's played by that. Um, the, all the actors were so great. Like, yeah. They really did seem. Which is the one that runs away? Is that Susan Atkins? No, that's Linda Kasabian. Linda Kasabian. So Linda Kasabian never killed anybody? No. Okay. And so when Brian said, did she really leave? I was thinking that she did. That's probably what Tarantino envisioned that she, that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to get in that car okay. and drive away. But she didn't. She stayed with them. She was their lookout. So she didn't. And then so Patricia Krentwinkle was the other girl that went and then Tex Watson. They're trying to go around the back. And so you think that they're going to go around the back of the Tate house and then they uh, break in and you see that they're in Rick's house. Yeah. Which I, when I wasn't sure, I mean, I had a sense that something you know different was going to happen. I wasn't quite sure it was going to be the, the full you know flip that he does. Oh, yeah. I, I, I thought that they were just going to maybe be more victims. Yeah. I guess or that was going to be the house instead or something. Yeah. Or maybe they're going to somehow save Sharon Tate or I don't know. I just didn't know. But the scene where they enter the house, I, I got very upset and nervous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and so when Tex busts in, obviously Cliff is high. On the tripping. acid cigarette. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, and also we didn't mention that the girl who plays Linda Kasabian is Uma Thurman's daughter. So oh, that's interesting. She's the one that runs off. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maya Hawk. Yes. Yeah. And then also apparently Rumor Willis is in it. Yeah, I didn't. I think, yeah, is she just one of the Manson girls, I guess? There's quite a few. I of think them. she actually <laughs> plays one of the actresses, like when they go to the party or oh, something. I, see. Yeah. I think. But yeah, and so when he busts in, he said, he asks him what his name is, I think, and he says, I'm the devil here to do the devil's business, which is actually what Tex said whenever he busted into Sharon's taste house. No, but I mean, that's a great moment when, you know, he does the dog sound and the yes. dog goes after Tex. Yes. <laughs> Well, how do you, I mean, I, one of the first things I heard about the movie, as far as the review goes, I think when it premiered at Cannes, was that it was wonderful until the ending. And then, the, I, mean, I think it was actually David Sims, and the sort of early scuttlebutt was that it had some sort of terrible ending that, you know, ruined the movie. Why would that huh. ruin the movie? I don't know. They, uh, they wanted to... Clearly, you disagree. So. They, they wanted it to be... Well, I mean, what's the other option? Is that he actually filmed these actual terrible murders that happened? Maybe maybe he thought, and, I, and he hasn't posted any kind of formal review, so I don't know, but maybe he thought oh. they just wouldn't go there at all. So what do you, we think about the idea that once the sort of attack happens, it instantly kind of turns into like a black comedy kind of? Like, maybe that could be what people are reacting to. Oh, maybe. I mean, it's definitely a lot of it is play for laughs. I mean, that last... It is, but it's also still intense and scary and menacing. And I don't know. It just feels like a very uniquely Quentin Tarantino thing where he only he can really pull this kind of thing off, where it's violent and gory and um, scary, but also odd and interesting and a little humorous. Well, and I guess with like me knowing so much about these murders how violently these people murdered other people it just made 
I mean, I, I just felt like, yeah, that's what you deserve. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's another kind of. I don't part care. Of it, I mean, like, I think that, I don't care that it's a. That, I mean, I understand that they're young women and they were brainwashed, right. but what they did. Knowing what they did is yes. informative to how you feel about the scene you're watching yes. specifically. So that you like, the, like I felt, you know, it was very cathartic to me. I felt right. Yes. For sure. Yes. Which I don't think you really had that. And this isn't a criticism. It's just interesting. You know, like yeah. what you bring to the movie is completely depending on how you enjoyed it in this particular movie which I can't think of another recent movie like that I mean everyone like I guess you can go to War 2 movie and not know the details of everything but yeah, and people you know start clapping in the theater I was at as soon as Brad Pitt you know released a dog and I can only imagine that much of that clapping is based on what you know happens exactly. otherwise right. right yeah you don't right. realize that I mean so lives are being saved right when that happens yeah. like an entire I mean, they like so they say that the '60s ended when those murders happened, right? Yeah, or like things changed, yeah. like right? Yeah. Culture changed, or like people who were living in a fantasy world suddenly weren't able to live in that fantasy world anymore, and so now this kind of with this alternate universe is like, okay, well maybe that that fantasy world just keeps going, yeah. and now maybe this old guard Hollywood and young guard Hollywood they start to become friends and like start you know having that connection where maybe that connection doesn't happen because oh, yeah, Leo and Sharon and Tate at the end, they like yeah. introduce themselves yeah. and get to know each other. Well, and, and Sharon Tate and her friends are not necessarily hippies, but they are still like going Younger, out. Yeah. They're young and they're yeah. going out. They're going to parties. Um, I love how at the end though it's kind of revealed that Sharon Tate has always known who he is oh, and that they're yeah. neighbors and like oh is that you know like you kind of get the idea. in another movie she'd be like who you know <laughs> right but, she's, yeah. yeah she's she's so sweet yeah. and I mean just. And Emil uh, Church has watched his movies. Yes, yes. She really was eight months pregnant. And you're like, that was five, six people at that place that were saved. Two the night before, there's like, there's more later. There's like 12 lives that were saved. So yeah. why, why, why can't you cheer? Were, so there were more people in reality at the Manson, at the Tate house that night than were in the movie, right? Well, no, there was only one other person. Oh. And that was a guy. We'll talk about it in the true oh, crime okay. part. Because we don't even have to, because everybody lives and everything's yeah, and, fine. And, and the way it happens now, it, you know, it feels like the story of it will be kind of how Leonardo DiCaprio explains it. Like, you know, what were they doing? Like, well, I don't know. They were high on drugs and they had knives, but we don't right. know what they were up to. And so maybe that's just as far as it goes. Right. You know, like, and then it won't be um, no greater significance, no death I'll, of the sixties. Yeah. Well, something else that was interesting was, you know, the Beatles' White Album is so tied to the Manson murders. Yeah, I, I would have heard another. A lot more on that, unfortunately. But. So the, they scrawl the word pig and piggies, and they get that from there. And Helter Skelter is his whole idea. So um, anytime, like, new generation gets into the Beatles, they get into the White Album, then they're going to learn about the Manson murder. He wouldn't be what he is today. No one remember him, you know? So that's nice to think of, too. Sure. He isn't yeah. mythologized. Yes. Right, right. I mean, I saw one headline, I didn't even read the article, but... It seemed to miss the point entirely and this person's concern was that by changing the history and like having everything like suddenly everything that happens to Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and that robs Sharon Tate of like her legacy somehow and robbed her, that character for a moment and I thought well, yeah that's the point <laughs> I mean like if, that's not the moment she wants right she I, wants it, to have her baby and I, be in more movies it, it, she, I guess the writer felt it minimized somehow the tragedy and it's like oh. I think if anything else it like highlights it you know, yeah. of course and supposedly and just going a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole <laughs> the music that the music that plays over the end scene which is sort of this kind of spaghetti western type vibe 
it, it's from the ending of a movie in which the character explicitly says uh, something like, and that's how I would have liked it to happen or something like that. Oh. Interesting. It's like, how are we supposed to feel about Roman Polanski? Because oh, yeah. we know what yeah. he goes on to do. And I'm not sure what the timeline of all that is. My that understanding, was like 77 70, or something. Okay. So I, I guess maybe that, well, for one, I understand Roman Polanski wasn't much around during that time anyway, but it's probably wise that he's not like yeah. a character. I was going to say, yeah. they don't do enough with that character to, to make it problematic, I don't think. It's not like they give him anything like you don't really know yeah. anything about him other than his name like he doesn't oh, do much yeah, of yeah. anything I mean I guess you can't if you're going to do a movie about that you can't ignore the fact that Roman Polanski was involved and so he might have gone on and still been a scumbag I think if he has that in him of course yeah so I bet they would have been divorced and maybe that would have played out the same I don't think it saves Roman Polanski or anything um, but I think Sharon Tate she just wanted to have her baby she mm-hmm. live in the hills Ring. yeah yeah and then, and then Damian Lewis, who plays Steve McQueen, who we were saying, I was saying, like, I looked him up. They looked so much alike. Because I thought Damian Lewis looked strange, but they look just alike. But he kind of narrates it, and he says that, you know, Sharon used to be engaged to Jay, and then he, she married Roman. So Jay's kind of hanging around, waiting for this to end, because he knows it's going to. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Great movie. Thumbs up. Can we do, like, a Quentin Tarantino series? Yeah, yeah, my favorite is Kill Bill Volume 3. <laughs> They're such experts on his filmography. <laughs> uh, well, Brian, now I'm going to tell Chris about the real Manson murders. I'm out of here. Okay. All right, so Chris, Charles Manson is my favorite murder. <laughs> is he really? <laughs> Which is weird because he never actually murdered anybody. Right. That we know of. Yeah. Um, definitely was capable of it. And um, again, like it's hard to explain because I really hate Manson. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I hate any. Let's any be clear of the murders. what you mean when you say your favorite murder. <laughs> the I, most I think fascinating. Have, I think every time you say that, you need to give a. <laughs> well, there's a whole podcast about it now. I think it's okay. Right. Um, but I, I one of the one of the first true crime books I read was Helter Skelter, and I just remember being just like fascinated by it. I think I talked about it before. I thought that once you get through the murders, you know, I was like, well, the rest of the half of the book is just the trial, but. That was just as interesting to me, and I've read Helter Skelter probably a few times, and I just I think uh, just like Tarantino, like we were saying earlier, maybe just this it's also fascinating because of the time, of the location, of the all of the strange ways the story goes. Yeah, the that, connection to the the music scene, the movie scene. The... Yeah, so it just makes it very fascinating. I mean, there's so many victims in the wake of Charles Manson. Uh, so I, I mentioned earlier, so if you want to know more, like I'm just going to give some some information. There's there's so much that goes into this too. I think that's why it's also so fascinating. So there's obviously the book Helter Skelter written by Vincent Bogliosi, who was the prosecuting atter- attorney. There's a series, the podcast series, you must remember this, a series on Charles Manson's Hollywood. Yeah, which I highly recommend that. And yes. in fact, I'm as we speak, re-downloading those episodes Okay. It's been a couple years. Listen on the way home? Yes. And then I also found another one. There was a podcast called um, Terror Talk. Uh, it's a true crime psychology podcast. And they had a series on Charles Manson that was really interesting. They're both um, psychologists. So they kind of talk about it much more in depth and um, what was going on. They're very intelligent about cults and and behavioral things. And so that I recommend that too. Okay. You ready? Yes. And I'm not going to get into Charles Manson's 
life. And if you, again, you you listen to those podcasts or you read the book, you can get, yes, he has a terrible childhood. He had a terrible mother. He spent literally half of his life was in prison before he got out at the age of 32. I mean, think about the hard times he had as a child and also being in prison this whole time. And he gets out and goes to San Francisco in the 60s, you know? So it's nothing. He comes into the this world of peace and hippies and love and drugs, and he probably feels very powerful. Yeah, but I mean, I guess what you're kind of saying, though, without getting into his background, is like there, it's undisputed that this guy was basically like created. You know, yes. don't you think? I mean, like it's he was not born likely. Well, I think a monster. I, yeah, he was probably he, he probably was always a sociopath. You know, maybe he had those tendencies, and then it was. He, but I don't. I mean, he was getting in trouble from day one. So I mean, sure, I think he already yeah. had that. But yeah. then, sure, the upbringing was not great either. But I think he's also just a bad dude. And so he started when he moved. He moved to the hate in San Francisco. He started accumulating followers, and his followers were young, impressionable women who usually had father issues. He zeroed in on that and he played like a father role to these girls he prostituted them for money did you um catch that that scene at the beginning of the movie where they the girls were shown going through the dumpsters mm-hmm. and they're singing that song yeah i didn't know that but that's apparently a manson song right. where they would do that just yeah walk around and which is weird because that song sounded kind of familiar so was, i guess i've heard that song <laughs> i don't know uh, but um, so I was surprised to learn that that was like completely accurate. That they were required to like dumpster dive and yeah. that type of thing, and that's how they ate. Yeah. So sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, you. no, interrupt any time. So he then he moved to Los Angeles. He wanted to be a musician. He he wasn't horrible. He um he could play and sing somewhat, but he didn't he didn't work hard at it. I think that I heard another good story about how when he was in prison, there was actually a musician in there who had like gone through. The music companies and stuff and he told him what he needed to do you need to work really hard you need to get like you know three good songs and and manson didn't do that he didn't work hard he didn't try um he just thought that he deserved to be superstar yes yeah. yeah so he meets dennis wilson who's obviously a member of the beach boys they he actually lives at dennis's house for a little bit some of the followers come with him and then dennis wilson is like you guys all got to get out so of here. So one thing that confused me is Dennis's house is not Terry Melcher's house. No. It has nothing to do with... No. Okay. And so the Beach Boys actually did record one of Manson's songs that he wrote. They rearranged the music and changed the title. And, you know, they paid him for it. but And then got put on the album. And then that was it. And but it actually got put on one of their albums? Yeah. What song is it, do you know? Um, well, it, he re- they renamed it. It was called, like... Um, well, the song he wrote... They changed the name to Cease to Exist. And it's just kind of... And if you listen to the lyrics, it's really creepy. It is about, like, becoming someone you're not and following... I mean, it's just like... It's kind of like his ideas in a, a song. It sounds like a romantic song. Yeah. But when you know that Charles Manson wrote it, it's not. And so um, so he gets in touch with Char- Terry Melcher. He thinks Terry, Terry Melcher is, is a music producer. He thinks he's going to sign him. Uh, Terry actually comes out to the ranch and listens to the music, and he's like, "It's not, it's not very good," you know. So this makes Ma- Manson furious because, again, Manson just thinks that he should have everything handed to him. He's also been manipulating these young girls and young men for so long that now he can't his this this charm or this whatever you call it that he has doesn't work on, you know, these big mu- mu- music producers. 
Um, so and then uh, similar in the movie, he recruits his followers and they move out to Spawn Ranch. All that was very accurate. I mean, he really broke them down. They're already most of them are from broken homes or they're very young women. And he they take acid every day. He makes them reenact like the crucifixion with him as Jesus. So there, he really is like putting it into their mind that he is is Jesus. How will they reenact the crucifixion? Do you know? Like they would, he would would actually like yeah they get on they cross or I don't know, but they would dress up. They would play fantasy because they're mm. tripping all the time, and all that is is confusing them. Another thing that I thought was really creepy that I read that he would make them mirror him, like you know they'd stop like I'm gonna do like a might play a game with a kid where like um, you do what they do, but he's like doing it to the followers. Like literally saying like be like me. So and then when this so they are they're already doing like a lot of illegal stuff. They're stealing, they're um, they're stealing cars. They start before they start to talk about murder. The the creepiest thing that I remember reading in Helter Skelter that still creeps me out is what they started to do before that is that they would dress in all black and break into people's homes and just creep around. Yeah, the creepy crawlies. Creepy crawlies. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They would just move furniture around or move things around, maybe steal some stuff. And that's just like so creepy to me. Especially, I mean, if you found out later that they'd done that to your house or have been in your house. I know. You think what could have been, been? Yeah, that must have been terrifying. But so he's obviously, you see that he's slowly working them up to worse yeah. and worse things. And he's he's pinpointing the people that he knows is are capable of this. You know, like, like he knew that Squeaky from, she wasn't a murderer. So he didn't enlist her. You know, he found the the people who were more violent. Like proper uses. Or the, yeah, yeah. Um, so I also want to talk about some lesser known murders before we get to the main murders. Okay. Um, I mean, lesser known murders that they did? Yeah. So this one's really fascinating. This isn't a murder, but this happened before everything. So there was an attempted murder of a guy named Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. He was a trumpet player and their drug dealer. At one point, Tex stole like $2,500 from him, and Crow got real mad and said he was going to kill everyone at Spawn Ranch. He wanted his money back, so they set up an, a sorry. So they set up a a meeting with Crow, and Manson actually shot him. And Manson thought he had killed him. Crow played dead. He left him, but he recovered. And what's really fascinating is that Vincent Bogliosi used Crow on the witness stand during the trials. And Manson did not know that he was alive oh, wow. until the trial. And so Vincent Bogliosi used him to show that Manson's capable of murder. He thought that he had murdered this this man. They also, the same gun that Manson used was the same one that Tex used in the Tate murders. So that was a huge uh, win for the prosecution. Another murder that they, they did before the big murders was Gary Hinman, Gary was a music teacher who introduced Manson to Dennis Wilson. Uh, Manson sent Tex and Susan Atkins, Mary Bruner, and Bobby Beausoleil to kidnap Gary. Now, Bobby Beausoleil was not in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but he was a huge part of the Manson family. They kidnap Gary Hinman, torture him for three days, try to get him to give him all their money. He already he gives them their cars, his cars, and they want more. And so Bobby Beausoleil ends up stabbing him to death and Bobby gets caught in Gary's car with the murder weapon and is convicted of the murder so Bobby Beausoleil is in prison at the time of the Tate murders yes but they never connected that to any kind of larger cult 
or anything? Or Not at the time. And some of the rumors also were they, th- they thought that maybe Manson had the next murders. He commanded the next murders to happen. So that way, Bobby Beausoleil would be let out. Oh. So it's like, no, it wasn't Bobby. Some Someone else is out there doing this. So at first, I didn't want to like go into the details of what all happens. But then, because I was after I was researching it all again, and I actually had to stop because I was actually like crying because it's just it's so sad and violent. And, and then also when you think about the end of Tarantino's movie where everybody lives, right. it's very emotional. But then I also wanted to say exactly what they did to show how violent it was. Okay. And how watching it play out a different way is so much more satisfying. And again, like we were saying, like there was some you know controversy about how it's too violent against the young people, or you know. But then you, when you read about what they did to these innocent people, yeah, it changes everything. Yeah, I think the idea was that it was almost misogynistic because it's specifically violence against women. And I think the idea is like, well. It's not that they're women; it's that they're killers. Yes. They're presumed killers. And so. it was the real; it was the people that actually did these. Right. Yeah. And so, so just for a disclaimer, if you don't want to hear this, then you may not want to listen. Sure. Uh, I'll just exit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on August 9th, they are sent out, and the, so it's Tex Watson. And Tex was like his kind of his number two, right? Yes. So Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, who they called her nickname was Sadie, yeah. which this was another reason why they thought that the Beatles were talking to them through uh, the Sexy White Album, Sadie, yeah. and because they named Sadie that before the White Album came out, mm. so they assumed that must be for them because of the song "Sexy Sadie." So crazy, <laughs> I know. and also Patricia Krenwinkel, who they called Patty. So uh, when I tell this story, it's going to be Tex. Sadie, who is Susan Atkins, I might mix them up, and then Patty, who go or Patricia, um, and then also uh, Linda Kasabian, what also came along. So in the car, they did a lot of cocaine. They were really drugged out of their minds, and then so like I had, we had talked about already, Linda Kasabian didn't want to be there. She kept a lookout in the movie. She drives away. They parked the car at the end of the road. So this is someone that was not portrayed in the movie either. So there was a, a young kid named Stephen Parent who just happened to be there. He was visiting the their groundskeeper. Yeah, I think that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, you know. so he was just there. He was trying to sell his friend a radio. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was sitting in his car, and text came up to came upon him. And, you know, the kid was like, I won't say anything. Just let me go. So he was kind of outside the house. Yes. Um, so he wasn't necessarily hanging out with Sharon Tate. Though. He no, was, no, he was. He visited the groundskeeper. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and the, it's so interesting too. They don't talk about it in here, but the groundskeeper was in his little house when all this happened. He didn't hear anything, so he was the number one suspect at first hmm. because he kind of just woke up the next morning and they were like, "How could you not hear this stuff going on?" But apparently he didn't. So I, I would have liked if Tarantino had had. Maybe, you know, show because Stephen Parent was a real person, too. He was just a 17. He just graduated high school. It would have been nice to see him maybe like backing out of the driveway and leaving yeah. or something. Just showing him also, you know, surviving this. So Tex came upon him in the car. Tex stabs him and slices at his arms. I mean, he just it steals his watch. 
I mean, Tex is just a, a maniac. And then he sh- and then if that wasn't enough, he shoots him four times point blank. Yeah. And so Steven is in his car. So then Tex slices the screen door. Uh, he lets Sadie and Patty in the front door. And so at the house, you have Sharon Tate, her friend Jay Sebring, who's a, a hairstylist, Wojtek Frykowski, who's a... Polanski's friend and his girlfriend Abigail Folger, who was heiress to the Folger Coffee Fortune. Uh, I also s- read that um, music producer Quincy Jones was supposed to come that night. Crazy. How insane is that? Wasn't Steve McQueen supposed to go out to dinner with them or something? Or maybe I don't know. I didn't see that. I mean, it could have been anybody, you know, in that house that whatever night it was. So Wojtek is asleep on the couch. Tex comes in and uh, wakes him up with a gun point at him and says what he says in the movie. I'm the devil here to do the devil's business, which I really loved in the Tarantino movie when he says that. We just laugh at him. Yeah, Brad Pitt's like, no, your name was something dumber than that. (laughs) What was it? Rex. Yeah. (laughs) In this case, unfortunately, Tex tells Sadie and Patty to go and round up everybody else. So they bring everybody into the living room. They tie a rope around Sharon's neck, throw it over a beam in the ceiling, and tie it to Jay Sebring's neck on the other side. So they're, like, stuck. He, then he tech stabs Jay seven times. They tie Wojtek up with a towel, and he gets out. But then he starts fighting with one of the girls. Sadie stabs him in the legs, but he's still, hap- he's still able to get out and, and try to run. But Tex catches up with him, stabs him bludgeons him and shoots him and at this point linda hears all this this noise going on so she comes up the driveway and she tells them someone's coming we gotta go she's trying to stop it but she doesn't know how i mean she could have called the police but they did they did cut the phone lines too to the house yeah so you know they're not completely drugged out they know what they're doing they know how to avoid getting caught so then abigail gets out too she runs away and tries to get out to the pool area but Patty catch up, catches up with her and stabs her. And then Tex stabs her another 21 times. Hmm. I mean, it's just completely uncontrolled violence. Uh, Wojtek is still uh, able to get up. And he's still trying to get away. But Tex catches up with him and stabs him 51 times. So again, you, hear, you see how violent these are. And you're like, yeah, he should have gotten his nuts eaten off by yeah. a dog. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Sharon Tate is still inside, tied to Jay who has been stabbed. They all come back in, and then, I mean, Sharon begs for her life and her baby. This is where I just, I had to stop. I couldn't, and then uh, she was stabbed 16 times. Manson tells them to write something witchy on the walls, so that's when they, in Sharon's blood, they write pig, which is something also that I noticed uh, when, once upon a time, Manson comes up to the house, and Jay Sebring comes out, and when he closes the door, they focus in on the door, and I recognized that from crime scene photos. Oh, really? Oh. It's the same door that they wrote pig on. Like, if you know it well enough, I guess you're like... I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Um, so they wrote it on the front door? I yeah. I didn't even know that. There's even a picture of, like, um, Roman Polanski sitting on his front porch, like, disheveled, with, and you can still see pig written really? in blood. Yeah. yeah. So then the next day, there's, there's a lot of press around this, but also I think a lot of people were like, well, they're movie stars. It's not going to happen to us. So there wasn't a lot of fear, I don't think, because the next night, Tex, Susan Atkins, Patty, Linda Kinsabian, Manson, and Clem all go out again. 
They're going to go find somebody else. They drive around for an hour. They ended up at a home where they went to a party at one point. But everyone in the car is like, they moved. They don't live there anymore. But Manson didn't care. Like, he just, he told them to kill the people next door. Like, none of it makes sense, right. you know? It's like, so he wanted to kill, he was mad at Terry Melcher. So he killed everybody that lived in his house now? I mean, you know, none of it made any sense. So then, and then he just wants to, he just wants to kill people. He wants to send the message. And we'll get to what his overall bullshit is. So who lived there was uh, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Their house actually came up for sale in July. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. Like right when the movie was coming out, that house came back up for sale. It's beautiful. Have people been living there? I guess so. Yeah, the same people have been living there for a long time, I think. I don't know how you could live there. but I don't know. I mean, something terrible happens there, but I think that you can move in and bring you know, goodness to a house again, you know, you bring life and you, and you live there again. And then maybe that kind of helps. Not this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so I, but I have told you that the person who lived here before killed themselves, right? In in this house? Yes. No. Yes. What are you talking about? The person who owned this house before committed suicide. You've never told me that. Oh, I guess I didn't want to (laughs) freak you out. Uh, So apparently the neighbors around here, they knew something was wrong with her. She wasn't coming out. They were trying to help her, and she was really depressed. And so I don't know how. I don't know how they found her. I'm I sure could, you've tried to find her. I have. <laughs> I could. I could ask them, but I can't, can't bring myself. A part of me does not want to know. Yeah. Um, but so You have never told me this, oh. and I, I, I can't believe it because it seems like the type of conversation that— I didn't want to tell Brian at first, but I knew I couldn't keep it a secret, so I told him Did that the this house— tell you? Well, I just, we just knew because right. we lived up the street— and so we knew what happened. And so they bought the house, the construction company, they were flipping it. And I was like, Brian, I want that house. But the woman that lived there committed suicide. You know, and you're she, like, sold. <laughs> I was like, take, I'll take it. <laughs> Soon after we moved in, I mean, there's a little boy. This is like just like out of a horror movie. Yeah. The little boy comes by the house. We're playing outside. And he's like... He's drawing a picture of it or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it really was. He was like, sad what happened there. This is like an eight-year-old boy. Crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Could you not say anything in front of my kids? Yeah, they have and, no idea, right? No. And they never... I No. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm sure he had the details. I could have asked him. So, come here. <laughs> but I didn't... I don't want to know, I probably, guess. That's probably best, yeah. Yeah. But so how I felt about it was how I sold it to Brian was like, we're going to move in here and we're going to fill it with yeah. love again. And I can tell you, I've lived here four years and there's never been oh. anything. Lino LaBianca was a self-made man. He owned a grocery store chain in LA. Rosemary owned, uh, co-owned a boutique. They're just like a normal, regular little couple. Manson and Tex went up to the house first. They came in through the back door. The door was unlocked again because it's just, I guess... These first murders were, they seemed like an anomaly. So Manson actually woke up Lino. He was still there. He helped Tex tie him up, um, sent Sadie and Leslie Van Houten to go and get Rosemary. Then Manson leaves. So who's left is Sadie, Leslie Van Houten, and Tex. He leaves them there. Uh, Lino and Rosemary, they stabbed them a dozen of times. They do all kinds of evil, evil things. They, they left a fork stabbed in Lino's belly. The word war was carved on his chest. And then in this case, they kind of upped the witchiness. They wrote rise in blood, death to pigs, 
And then on the refrigerator, someone wrote um, Helter Skelter, like they spelled it wrong. Oh, really? But So they wrote Helter Skelter, and they spelled it wrong. Also, one of the most fascinating things in Vincent Bogliosi's book, because I mean, that's so detailed, so interesting, is like somebody took a bite of cheese in the refrigerator and put it back, and that was, they were able to use that in the evidence too. Mm. They could match the teeth marks to one of them. Um, And so I just want to talk about the victims. I mean, so Jay Sebring was a celebrity hairstylist. He was 35 at the time. He had styled Steve McQueen, Tony Bennett, Bruce Lee. He really took like men's styling to another level in the 60s. He was kind of a a revolutionary kind of about that. He was engaged to Sharon Tate at some point, but then they called off the marriage and they, but they became very close friends. Um, Steve Parent was just, oh, he was actually only 18. He had just recently graduated high school. Um, this really like messed their family up. His mom died a few years later because she was so distraught. Um, Sharon Tate was just 26. She was a, a aspiring actress. She hadn't been in too much, but I mean, especially I didn't what, even know she was in Valley of the Dolls until that movie. But. Yeah, and I mean, she all she just wanted to have her baby and keep working in Hollywood. She probably would have had who knows how her career would have gone, which is so depressing. So they're investigating things this whole time. So in October, after the August murders, Manson is, and some of his followers are arrested for car theft. They, they raid Spod Ranch. In November, Susan Atkins, who's Sadie, is arrested in connection to the murder of Gary Hinman. While in jail, she confesses to her cellmates, and one of her cellmates becomes ends up being a prosecuting witness. So everybody is just... Manson told somebody else who told somebody else. They're, they just... Yeah, not masterminds. No, no. I mean, Manson was convicted for first-degree murder, even though he didn't actually commit the murders. He's also given one count of conspiracy to commit murder. But like I had said earlier, any major f- felony or anything, he probably would have been put away for yeah. life, just based on his record. He was given the death penalty, but it was ruled unconstitutional in California in 1972. And then, so he, he died in like 2016 or something. Right. Which I remember just feeling like, Finally, yeah, I do like that 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 was not that big of a deal. Like you know, when he died, that wasn't really that no. reported, and you know, just yeah. kind of. I think you know, the, there's a few documentaries on TV that night. Like Dateline probably reran their <laughs> whatever special they had, but that was about it. There's yeah. So actually, a week after the murders, ranch was raided. That they weren't arrested until later, but. Manson thought that that stuntman that we've been talking about, he was a retired stuntman named Donald Shorty Shea. He worked on the ranch, and he didn't like the family being there. He thought that they were taking advantage of George. So, again, that's why I really thought that Brad Pitt character was going to end up being this guy. And so Manson thought that he was blaming him for tipping off the police. So Bruce Davis and Clem, who was Stephen, his nickname was Clem, drove Shea out into the desert they tortured him and dismembered him and buried him out there on the and, ranch. And that was after the murders? Yeah. I guess I never knew that. And so Bruce Davis and Clem were both given life sentences, but Clem was released in 85 for giving the location of the body. In 77, he actually gave the location of the body and was released in 85. Yeah, I think I read the judge also decided he was clearly like not mentally capable of making the decision to kill someone mm-hmm. like, like he was and so then of course susan atkins got life in prison she's still in prison leslie van houten got life in prison tex of course i think he converted to christianity didn't he i don't know patty krenwinkel 
also they all got life they're still i think most i think they're all still in there i mean we don't have to get into all the trial if you want to get have some more information about that again read helter skelter but that's just fascinating how they were still following him they were shaving their heads they were cutting their foreheads i mean it's just yeah well, it's I guess, insane guess once you're brainwashed you're well, yeah, and they, in, yeah. i think they were all i'm sure that people were thinking like well is this just is this life now is this how things are going to be are these cults going to be popping up mm-hmm. all over is this the end of the world i mean that's how i mean i could see how they you would feel that um there's also a couple other murders that kind of you know don't get the notoriety there was a young kid named john philip hot he was 22 also known as zero that was his nickname he was found dead with a bullet in his head um the family claimed that he was playing russian roulette but the gun was loaded with just one shot that was fired manson didn't like zero and thought so that he, he was, was weak. part of the manson family yes okay so when you say the family you mean the manson family yes okay. there was another young woman named 19 year old reet jervitson she came to L.A. and joined the family. She was found with 150 stab wounds. Jeez. But uh, it's so sad. She wasn't identified until 2015 when her family was able to finally identify her. I can't think of any other things that were different or... I mean, everything was... She, he did a great job, like, with the accuracy. Like, even, like, the, the Twinkie truck that Manson drove around. That's what he drove. Oh, it was a Twinkie truck? Yeah. He was, came He I, came up to the home one day looking for Terry Melcher. Yeah, I mean, he'd I, been there before. So that is a very condensed version of the Manson murders. Just if you had absolutely no idea. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's so much more that you can learn about that. Yeah, I mean, if you can stomach it, I do certainly recommend Helter Skelter. That's, I haven't read you know, very many true crime books. Oh, but yeah. Well, I guess, I, mean, I guess we'll say what Manson's what he thought ideology yeah i mean so he believed that the beatles were the four horsemen of the apocalypse coming back um that they were giving subliminal messages through their music to black people to rise up against white people manson was um a racist he thought that there was going to be an inevitable race war which he named helter skelter from the beatles song which helter skelter is actually just a slide it's like a playground equipment, you know. That's the, it's a nickname for that over there. Anyway, mm. so, so he thought that him and his followers were all going to arm themselves and get all the money they could and hide in the desert until the race war was over. That's what he thinks is going to happen. And so what's going to happen is the black people are going to win, but because he doesn't think the black people are capable of running the world, so the, him and his followers will come up and they will rule over the black people and start slavery again. And I don't know how much of this is just, like, him having fun telling a story and trying to manipulate his people. I, I don't know how much he actually believes that. I think that he really is just, like, an evil, angry man. part of his manipulation. It yeah. might have been. And he just wanted to murder people because he didn't get signed. He wanted to be a musician and they wouldn't let him, you know, or whatever. And so I don't know how much of that is just nonsense. You know that episode of South Park when they do Scientology? And yeah. they explain, and they ha- and they explain it, and animated it, and they have to put on there. This is what they really believe, right. <laughs> which is kind of like how I feel like with this whole thing. It's yeah, just I mean, like, it's total total spaghetti monster nonsense, yeah. but it's no more crazy than other kind of stories. Yeah, I guess particularly Scientology is actually crazier than that. <laughs> I mean, oh God, maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, so that was our very exhaustive discussion of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and some of the. Uh, aspects of the Manson murders and what what actually happened. Yeah, well, I mean, that's definitely easily my favorite movie this year, probably. Between that and Midsummer, I mean, they're close. And so, uh, if you want to 
talk to us about the Manson murders or Quentin Tarantino or anything else we've ever talked about, join our Facebook group. Sometimes groups are better. Uh, the more, the merrier. And then we're on Instagram at sometimes dead for Twitter, sometimes dead podcast. And then slide into our DMs. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you slide in my DM and ask about the Manson murders, I will not respond. <laughs> if you want to talk about the color scheme of the movie, I'll be, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Good night. <laughs>